embedded in old tech are alternative ways of being and thinking and experiencing the world. When young people come into the lab, they're like, oh my God, I have to text my parents or my grandparents because it's not the tech itself, it's that they understand some part of the being of their, their parents or their grandparents. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Jennifer Waits. Hi, I'm Paul Reismandel. On today's show, we're taking a look at media archaeology and networks and how those concepts intersect with radio and sound. Our guest, Lori Emerson, is founding director of the Media Archaeology Lab. She's an associate professor in the English department and director of the Intermedia Arts Writing and Performance Program at University of Colorado at Boulder. Lori, thanks so much for joining us on Radio Survivor. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I've I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while now. And what really prompted it recently was that you've been tweeting about some really intriguing things, especially for somebody like me who's interested in history and vintage technology. So you've been tweeting about other networks um, and all these archival finds that you're unearthing related to telephones, radio, and strange audio communication devices like fence phones and telephone newspapers. So I thought maybe we'd start our conversation today by talking about this research that you're doing and why are you why you're digging up all these vintage examples of I guess essentially communication tools and methods. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, let me start with other networks. So other networks is a term I came up with to describe a whole cluster of projects I've been picking away at for the past five or six years um, related to uh, basically trying to defamiliarize the contemporary internet. Um, and so I've been using this term other network to describe any network that existed before the internet came into existence in 1984 and also to describe any network that currently exists outside of the, the internet. Um, my thoughts have been that the internet has had a, an incredibly homogenizing effect on network culture. And you can see how that's the case just in the name, the internet, which gives the impression that it's the only internet rather than the largest internet and that other internets or other networks of networks um, uh, don't exist. So I think generally speaking, I'm pretty passionate about doing whatever I can to defamiliarize any technology that's become uh, so seemingly natural that it's like air. It's something that you can't question, you can't rework, and you can't imagine or you can't reimagine. Um, so it, this is qu not quite as uh, revelatory as it was thanks to um, somewhat recent revelations about the role of psychometric tracking and surveillance and, um, you know, manipulation of people's opinion and misinformation going on on the internet, um, that people understand now that the, the contemporary internet that we are experiencing is deeply flawed. Um, and I, I'm not saying that we all need to get off the internet, but I am saying that um, should we want to take advantage of them, other networks do exist, have existed, and they have some affordances that the, that the current internet does not have. 
Um, so as part of this overreaching other networks project, um, I've recently started working on a catalog of other networks and I was foolish enough to think that this was going to be a fairly straightforward project <laughs> I could crank out in a year. <laughs> right. Because I had already done research and I discovered, well, discovered for me anyway, video techs and bulletin porn systems and um, I don't know, um, sneaker nets, all kinds of what I thought were interesting um, not well-known networks, but as I started to do research, I just like, it's practically a daily exercise in my brain blowing up at all of the networks that have existed since the beginning of human civilization. Um, Sneaker net is, you know, probably peaking my ears and Paul's ears. Well, we, we've definitely heard that term or used that term in, <laughs> in radio circles, right? Like, these sneaker nets where tapes might be transported between different radio stations. Yeah, we would call it when I worked in IT, sneaker net just meant that you had a USB drive in your pocket. And because it might be faster to bring files to somebody that way than it would be to transfer them over the actual computer networks at times, uh, especially, you know, years ago when computers and networks were, were slower. And I, I wanted to take that as a, as a bridge to try and concretize this, kind of make this, make these other networks maybe a little bit more understandable for folks. You sort of mentioned some things in, in passing, um, Lori, but maybe, I don't know, are there some sort of somewhat contemporary examples you could bring us? Something from maybe the, it's within the last uh, 25 to 50 years that you would call one of these other networks that, that someone might be familiar with, but just hasn't thought of it in that way? Um, well, I guess one example right off the top of my head is a mesh network. And um, I learned about this from the collection of one laptop per child computers that we have in the Media Archaeology Lab. And um, we have about 20 of them and they, they were built um, to be little networking machines. They're like a $100 computer that Nicholas Negroponte from the MIT Media Lab created in um, 2005, 2006, something like that, as a way to try to help so-called underdeveloped countries catch up um, to uh, developed countries in terms of their, their computing power and their IT power. So um, yeah. We don't really like the philosophy behind these one laptop per child computers, but the fact that they have these mesh networking capabilities, um, which as far as I know, work through Bluetooth is So, so is could you explain a cool. mesh network? Because I think that that's something which people hear the word, but, but what does that really mean? What does a mesh network mean? Well, as, as far as I understand, uh, a mesh network is a, a way of creating connections using radio waves over Bluetooth directly to devices. Right. So, um, so it's, it's all the same kind of networking technology that people are sort of familiar with, except you're not necessarily connecting to like one big network, like the internet, but all these devices are sort of connected to each other. Right. I think exactly. that's why they call it a mesh because you can sort of imagine if you have 10 devices in a room, device one and two are connected to each other, device two and three are connected to each other, et cetera. And they can sort of share a network. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, people might be familiar with, you can buy these for your home in a way you can create like your own sort of wireless network 
if you have a big house or a lot of land to cover to cover it, but it's basically you're creating one network for your house that then in turn connects to the internet, but your house in fact kind of has its own network going on, right? Is that yeah. sort of what you mean? Yep. And, and the more people that get on the mesh network, the bigger the, the, um, I guess the circumference of the network becomes. So there's an app that people can download on their phones called fire chat, which is a fairly popular, mesh networking application that people use um, in protests and they used it in protests in Egypt and Turkey. Um, yeah. Are there any sort of more analog examples of things that you consider an, an other network that isn't necessarily for a computer? Yes. Well, this gets into maybe eccentric lorry territory. Um, so in, in the other networks catalog, I have decided to break it up into four big categories. There's wired networks, wireless networks, imaginary networks, and unclassifiable. And unclassifiable is usually some combination of wired and wireless. And at some point I decided that wireless is just any network that doesn't have wires. And so <laughs> that could include books. Books are networks. They're, they network knowledge, they network people. Uh, it includes libraries. It includes things like the Pony Express and the postal system. Um, and I suppose it also includes some uh, non-human animal networks like um, Pigeon Post as well. It makes me, when you talk about these things, it makes me think about talking to my sister through our heater vents at home, you know, like there, there's so many different ways you can network and communicate that, yes. that don't involve, you know, or, you know, the old Dixie cup string telephone. Um, and I'm also thinking about, you know, I know that you are interested in how artists are using some of these networks. Um, it makes me think about artists who use voicemail. So, you know, people leaving messages on voicemail that then become part of a piece of art. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and I didn't even mention the, the more obvious, all the experiments with uh, semaphore and Morse code. And it turns out that there's such a thing as a hydraulic semaphore. Go figure. Um, Tell us about that. What, what is, I don't even know what a semaphore is. Um, semaphore is, uh, I think it's just the, the, the broad term for um, a code. And Morse code is the most common form ah, of, of semaphore. What yeah. I think of is, is flags that there are, yep. that, that, that you could to use over long distances, say from like a watchtower to watchtower, yes. you would have flags. And I think the flags could sometimes be different themselves, or it's really, I, I'm doing something which you all listening can't see, but might be two flags and a person would hold both up or hold them at right angles to each other or shift which one is up left or right. Yep. And that would have different meanings to easily transmit something from a watchtower to watchtower could be for military reasons, or I think also could be in situations such as if you think, um, you know, uh, oil drilling towers. And again, in the time before there was, uh, before there was easy wireless uh, electronic communications. Uh, that's what I think of as semaphore, but maybe it does have the broader term. Uh, to it yes semaphore can be it can be flags it can be fire it can be smoke it can be um a series of mirrors um so there was a a piece of technology uh developed i can't exactly remember right now let's say the late 19th century early 20th century called the heliograph was just a sophisticated system of mirrors 
set up that were reflecting the sun and you could actually set up a, a network of heliographs that would transmit information. And interestingly enough, the Forestry Protection Service used heliographs to communicate, I think, until the 1950s or the 1960s. So you're already kind of getting into this territory, but I would love to hear about more of these sort of wacky networks that you've discovered in your research. Yeah, well, let me tell you about three of my favorite artist networks, because actually the artist networks are the ones that sent me down this road initially. Um, I, I don't get really jazzed up about just pure technology. For me, it's always artists playing with the limits and possibilities of the technology that gets me excited about it. So one of them is uh, called Plant Nodes, and it's by an artist named Sarah Grant. And basically she set up um, infrared transmitters and receivers. She attached them to plants and then she figured out how to transmit floral assay art through these infrared transmitters and receivers. Um, so it, the, the message would be transmitted as pulses of light between plant nodes and um, the output would be this really interesting plant ASCII art that would also have glitches whenever the sun would go behind a cloud or whenever one of the um, leaves or stems in the plant would move. Um, and by ASCII art, you mean that's like, it's like text that stands in for a picture, essentially, as you draw a picture using just the characters on a keyboard. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and her partner, uh, Danya Vasilyev, he is a Russian critical engineer, as he calls himself. And he created this really interesting piece called Netless, um, which he says is a digital network and it uses um, city public transport as the information carrier. Um, and so he's got these little radio receivers, I think, that act as nodes of the network and they're attached to city vehicles and the city vehicles, they could be trams, buses, taxis, or even pedestrians. And so anytime one of these nodes passes each other and it could take a really long time for them to pass each other, um, there's an information exchange that takes place between the nodes. Um, that sounds like satellite to me because, um, you know, there, we think of satellite most of what we think of as satellite is, is called like a geostationary, right? It means that the satellite stays in a fixed orbit above earth. And so if we get television via satellite in North America, that's because that satellite sits above North America. But, um, during the Soviet times and certainly in other times, there are satellites, which, which actually do, uh, circumnavigate the earth. Uh, I were, <laughs> this is going deep, but you, <laughs> but, um, and, and it was used for television often in the Soviet Union to reach like the far uh, northeastern part uh, of Russia, right? Which is nearly abuts uh, uh, Alaska, of course. So that for a couple of hours a day, that part of the Soviet Union could get some television beamed in, you know, ultimately from Moscow, right? But only for a couple of hours a day because it was otherwise difficult to beam a satellite signal that far away. So they would use a non-geostationary satellite. I know about this because I worked at a language learning lab at the University of Illinois, where they had. I came in at the end of the Soviet period. They had had a, a government grant to have a, a satellite dish on the roof of the building I worked 
to track that same satellite as it would pass over uh, a part of North America, the American Midwest, and be able to pick up that Soviet television for like an hour a day. And this dish, enormous dish, was just there and it would have to actually travel and scan the sky and program to kind of pick it up as it went through. This would have been in the early 1990s, but it reminds you the same thing. It's like you, it's, it's only sort of this moment, except that was of course, um, there was no luck involved, if you will. <laughs> it was right. It wasn't coincidence. It was planned coincidence in that way, but it was not networks, which could be, you know, and, and, and I think similarly, it makes me think of shortwave radio, which at times uh, broadcasts may only be heard in one region for an hour or two a day and how shortwave broadcasters will actually vary their programming, knowing that uh, this is the period in which it might be caught, you know, might be received in parts of China and you will broadcast in that Chinese dialect versus it might be received in Morocco and and and, and then be, uh, you know, broadcast in, say, French or uh, or Arabic or something like that. You know, and that sometimes it seems that there could be some of this sort of timing and coincidence as part of the networks, not just sort of the uh, uh, fixed, shall we say, always on connection, which I think we often think about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it might be a term actually in telecom. I have a, a networking Bible right in front of me. <laughs> I can't look it up, but I think there are actually two different kinds of networks and they are fixed or mobile as far as I know. Um, but the ones that you, that you were just talking about, Paul, like the, the satellite networks that are only available at certain times. And it's really interesting to me because something I've been thinking about is that this incredible acceleration in the pace of work and the pace of life has mirrored exactly the growth of the internet, which mm. is on and ever present 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And um, I've just been thinking more about the value actually of networks that aren't ubiquitous, that aren't ever present, that aren't on all the time and that aren't necessarily open to everyone all the time um, and, and the, the value of that to our our sanity and also the value to um, maybe not consuming and producing so much waste as well. E-waste, all kinds of waste. Can you talk more that, about that? Yeah. So, sorry, Jennifer. Yeah. yeah and, and is that, I know you're working with slow networks. Is that what you mean by slow networks? The networks that are maybe not on all the time or is that a completely different category and I'm jumping jumping ahead of things <laughs> no i mean uh well slow slow networks is a term that i came up with um after thinking about the slow food movement the slow cooking movement and more recently there's been some books on slow media um and i think they're all generally interested in these deliberate attempts to find ways to get away from our current cultural obsession with speed, efficiency, and productivity that burns people out and encourages us to also burn through natural resources. Um, so midway through the, the really darkest months of the pandemic, um, Libby Striegel, who manages the Media Archaeology Lab, and I decided that we'd try to keep engaged with the lab by doing these socially distant experiments with networks that are slow. And I, I, I probably by definition all of the other networks are slow as well um but we we're just interested in giving it a slightly different frame 
and slow, both in terms of temporality, but also in terms of an embrace of deliberateness, like slowing down and thinking about how exactly does this given network work from the ground up? Who is it connecting and how and what are its affordances? Uh, yeah. So when when I think of that, you know, I imagine someone who who is participating in in like pen pals might is a slow network, deliberate, temporal slow, of course, because the medium itself is the mail, which depending on how far it goes, could be could be days or weeks, and and certainly at an earlier time months. And, and uh, for most of us, I think writing a letter on a piece of paper is probably more deliberate <laughs> in a lot of ways than, than, than a text or, or a tweet or a Facebook post or a TikTok or something like that. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I, I hadn't classified the postal system as a slow network, but especially these days, sorry, USPS, it definitely, <laughs> it definitely is. I know you know, some of the experiments, you know, since we're, you know, largely fixated on radio and sound here on Radio Survivor, um, I know that some of these slow network experiments you're doing in the Media Archaeology Lab are related to sound and to radio. So I was hoping you could talk about a few of those and, and what you're learning. Yeah. Um, well, I think all of our slow network experiments with radio have been largely about teaching me and then teaching other people about the the basics of radio transmission and reception as well as the basics about electronics which also can include how to solder um i am even though i've, I've sort of created a name for myself with the media archaeology lab i'm constantly plagued with the uh, feelings of incompetence and when it comes to um, making building doing um, and it's almost entirely because of my gendered upbringing in an obscure corner of Canada in the 1970s and the 1980s. So, um, but this is, it's not a personal mission. I figure if I feel incompetent in the position that I'm in, then surely lots of other, especially women have the, the same experience. So what we've been trying to do with the slow networks is break things down and make them as simple and as clear as possible and document everything um, very clearly and straightforwardly so that anybody who has maybe absolutely no experience playing around with um, radio could do a little experiment themselves. So this one doesn't involve sound, but it does involve radio and it never fails to make me giggle because um, Libby taught me how to broadcast my Twitter feed to eight of her old TV sets um, from the 1970s and the 1980s in the lab. So um, just the experience of seeing my Twitter feed from at that time of his 2021 broadcast on these old TVs from the 70s and the 80s was so weird and interesting and strange. Um, and it, it's just we were basically, we connected a USB-C HDMI cable from my laptop to a HDMI analog video adapter. And then we connected the cable to one of the VCRs that we have in the lab. And 
the VCR was already connected to a blonder tongue modulator with RCA cables. And then we set the modulator to channel eight and the FM radio station to 88.1, plugged the digital TV antenna into one of the modulator jacks, um, turned the television station to channel eight and broadcast my Twitter feed. And I don't know, that just entertains the heck out of me. So you made a TV that. transmitter. You made a TV yeah. station. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> and it's not hard to do, it turns out. If anybody well, wants, if anybody wants step-by-step instructions about how to do this exact thing, and you know, God knows why you'd want to, but a lot of what we do is it's not utilitarian, it's really for delight. Um, anyway, it's on my website, lauriemerson.net. And how do you um how do you figure out, you know, because you've got so much stuff, and we'll talk more about the lab. You've got so much gear in the lab. So um, how do you decide, you know, you just described how you attach so many different things together. Um, you know, what what's exciting you right now? Like, how are you deciding what experiment you're going to do next? That's a good question. Um, I think it has to be accessible. It has to be fairly simple. It has to be something that we can do in two hours because we are busy people, unfortunately. Um, yeah. So, so, so I've got about 10 more lined up. I've got a little ongoing list and they're pretty straightforward. Like we have a, uh, a Soviet era uh, children's Morse code tool <laughs> that I want to figure out how that works. Hopefully that's not terribly time consuming. Um, what, it, what is a Morse code tool? <laughs> Tell me more about that. That sounds amazing. Um, I, I, I don't know how detailed I can be, but, but it's just basically this, I feel like it's a 1980s era, um, toy for children to teach them Morse code. So to like tap it out. I got, I guess. Yeah. That's amazing. It is kind of amazing. I have to admit anything that comes to the lab from, uh, Russia, Soviet era countries is just kind of mind boggling to me. Well, let, let's talk about the lab. And I mean, this is media, the Media Archaeology Lab. Um, I got to visit a few years ago. It was super fun. I, it's full of all kinds of vintage stuff, including old Macintosh computers. I got to play Oregon Trail, the old kind of uh, text-based adventure game on one of the computers with my kid, which was really exciting. And, and then there was other tantalizing, there were rooms that were full of AV equipment that was very tantalizing that I didn't get to check out. Um, but maybe walk us through, you created the lab, you were the founding director, correct? So maybe talk about, um, you know, what the lab is and, and why it exists. Yeah, it's, um, it's actually, it's a very straightforward question, but answering it is quite difficult for me because um, it's been around for 13 years. And as a, as a, essentially an arts humanities lab at a university, 13 years is actually a, a long time for it to be around. And in that span of time, it's really morphed into so many different things over the years. And now I, I think of the media archeology span lab, or we call it the MAL, as a kind of Rubik's cube of labs. It can be 
so many things depending on who you are and what you need from it. And I think that is exactly why it's so um, popular and, and charming and delightful to so many people. Um, so it is a lab. I guess that's important point number one. It is not a museum. I, I say it's an anti-museum museum or it's museum adjacent um, because everything in the lab works and is meant to be turned on and played with and tinkered with and opened up and experimented with. Um, and we have tech from the, I'd say, late 19th century through to the present moment. And I, I think because Libby and I are just voraciously curious and delighted by almost anything, um, the tech that finds its way into the lab could be almost anything. Um, so, it's a lab for hands-on creative practice. Uh, we have artists' residencies throughout the year. Um, people come from all over the world to come hang out in the lab for a week or two and make music or you know, try to figure out the history of um, typography on early computers or do research on interfaces, all kinds of stuff. Um, it's also just a venue for hands-on teaching and learning, a uh, venue for research, because I also see our collection as a kind of an archive. Um, and it's also just a, a place for open-ended play. Um, yeah, and also, also, also a hub for community. I've realized over the years that um, the, the tech itself doesn't mean much unless it has a group of people around it to make it come alive and to um, to make it meaningful to other people. And so what all is in there? Um, you know, I only saw a glimpse of it and I know there's a lot more there than when I visited. Um, specifically related to audio, what sorts of fun things, unusual things do you have? I know you have things like, you know, old Walkman and Walkman um, and other sorts of audio playing and recording devices. Um, what else is in there? Other kind of unusual things that people might not be aware of related to sound? Um, well, first of all, since you were last in the lab, we now have a, a very large printed matter collection. It's not, I guess, not exciting, but I, I think it's cool. A printed matter collection of books, manuals, um, textbooks, all kinds of stuff related to radio that date back to the 1920s through to about the 1970s or the 1980s because we just had some really awesome donations from old, you know, radio technicians or people who work for RCA or something like that. Um, and the books are not only fascinating, but they're also beautifully designed. So I am actually quite fond of that part of the collection. Um, we have an Edison diamond disc phonograph player that's from 1912 um, that thrills me to no end. It works with hand crank, no electricity, and the sound and the volume that comes out of that machine is actually really stunning. Um, and like you say, we have a whole range of portable sound devices, cassette tape, uh, Walkmans, uh, CD player Walkmans, first and second generation iPods, a lot of AM FM radios from the 1940s on a handful of these really wonderful hybrid 
um, TV, FM, AM, radio clocks, um, cell phones, um, early laptops that have radio Bluetooth capabilities. I already mentioned the one laptop per child computers, but we also have a couple um, IBM PC radios. And this is, this is like a little curious piece of technology. The IBM uh, PC radio was a notebook computer released by IBM in late 1991. And it was designed for workers on the go, like service technicians, salespeople, public safety workers. Um, it was very rugged. It had no internal hard drive. And it came with, uh, I think, both a cellular and an RF modem in addition to a standard landline. I think that is pretty cool. Um, in terms of weird, I, I, I think the weird things are more adorable than anything else. So we have a, um, a little gadget called a select antenna. Have either one of you heard of this before? No, I think um, I have, but, but tell us more. It's this, it's just this weird, uh, like large plastic disc with a, an antenna wrapped around on the inside and it has no batteries and no power, but it apparently can double the normal listening range of a, of a radio station I have one. anywhere in the country. Oh. And, and during the nighttime, it can something like extend the, the range of a radio station up to 700 miles. Um, yeah, it works on AM some... radio. Yeah, yeah, I, I have yeah. one. I have. Oh, I you have, do. I have not that one. I have a more later version that's got a little dial, and it works through. Yeah, it's basically makes you. It's like a bigger AM antenna, but you don't. It works through induction, so you yeah. only have to put it next to your radio. Exactly. And it's not... from the 1970s, but it's designed to look like it's from the 1940s, yes. which I think is a little strange. Yeah. Yeah. So when people come in, like, yeah, my mind is sort of blown thinking about all of this stuff because there could be a wide variety of people interested in this material. You know, like when you're talking about the printed matter, um, you know, I'm getting excited thinking, ooh, is some of this stuff that I could use in my research. Um, and you're in Boulder. So are people able to access any of this material if they aren't able to come into the lab physically? Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I, I think that a good number of the items in our catalog do have links now to the Internet Archive. So if anything has a, a manual or a already scanned version of it, it's linked to the Internet Archive. Um, but we're also happy to work with people one on one if we can, you know, scan materials or on rare occasions, we'll even mail things if they're small and not super valuable we'll we'll mail a little item to someone to to help them with their their research or their art practice that's amazing um so i mean another thing we haven't talked about is um you're an english professor so i think this is very fascinating to me that an english professor has created this technology lab um because i'm sure this is really far removed from what a lot of us might stereotypically think about um, what an English professor does. Um, so I'm really curious about this confluence and what, what made you passionate about older technology and how you're able to kind of weave that into your practice, you know, as a scholar. Mm. Well, gosh, um, I think I'd have to start with 
why I founded the Media Archaeology Lab, if if you don't mind me yeah. tackling the question from that angle. Sure. <clears throat> um, my background, believe it or not, is in experimental poetry. I got my, my PhD from the University of Buffalo um, in the poetics program there. And that program was and probably still is, I'd say, obsessed with um, the materiality of language, as we put it. So just really into exploring the, mm, the, the sound, the shape, the feel, uh, the tangibility of, of letters and words. And it's not particularly interested in trying to represent something that already exists in the world. It's just interested in exploring what, what is language in our mouths and our bodies as a sculptural thing. Um, so I, in that environment, I wrote a dissertation on digital poetry. And this was in, I, I guess I graduated in 2007, 2008, something like that, when almost nobody knew what digital poetry was. I think people still don't really know what it is. But at that time, it was poetry that is uh, kinetic or animated in some way, or it might be trying to uh, pretend to be three-dimensional with that little tool called VR, VRML, if anyone remembers that. Uh, or it could be computer-generated. Do you remember VRML? I do remember VRML, <laughs> yeah. which is, I mean, it. I, I think we would say ML is the markup language, right? So basically, it's just a way of writing uh, sort of HTML is what the web is written in. And so VRML is so you can write out like virtual reality, right? V is what the yes, universe stands for. Exactly. Oh my so, goodness. <laughs> so there were these, I thought they were amazing at the time, these poems that were shaped like, uh, like VR cubes and you could turn, spin them and turn them. And there was language on the inside of these cubes and on the outside and um, it really blew my mind at the time. You know, um, I, I don't want to take us too far on a tangent just because you mentioned that. Because what it occurs to me, you, you talk about this, this is, you know, it's a markup language. So in a way, it was super accessible, right? That was something which uh, which anyone could kind of sit down and probably in the course of a of a week learn how to do that, right? Yeah. Right, right? but it's sort of kind of a program, but, the, uh, but in a very simple way to create this like vir virtual reality sort of thing and to create these poems. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, is that because it's in a code, like someone else could read that, someone else could hack it, someone else could change it versus if it were just handed to you as a, as a ready-made um, animation, right? In a lot of ways it's done. It's not knowable. What, what, you know, no one knows if you did it in, Adobe After Effects or in some other sort of software package. There was a certain yeah. kind of openness to it that that you I feel sometimes that we're missing a little bit there. So it's so Absolutely. interesting that you, that you kind of explored that. Yeah, I, I'm glad that you picked up on that um, because it actually does relate to the the founding of the Mal. So then I was I was hired here at CU Boulder. Um, I think they thought I was going to be a a nice, well-behaved poetry professor. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> didn't turn out that way. <laughs> Sorry. Um, within the first year or two that I got here, I just had an idea, like, wouldn't it be cool if I had a, a room on campus where students and researchers could experience some of these really old digital poems on the original platforms um, and see what difference it makes to 
experience, in particular, a poem by a Canadian poet, B.P. Nickel. It's called First Screening. And people can look it up. It's it's a, an emulated version is on YouTube. Um, and this emulated version actually came out the year before. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I got that on five and a quarter inch floppies? And I got 12 Apple IIe computers and I brought my students in and we really thought about like, what difference does it make for us to hear the 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 whirring of the the machine and to to listen to the hard drive uh do its work and you know really experience the the clackiness of the keyboard and to have to use the command line interface which for english majors is like almost a step too far <laughs> but like you were saying paul apple basic it is beautifully accessible, I think. And you barely need to understand programming to be able to read Apple Basic because it is, it's so clear and so accessible. Um, and when that emulated version of First Screening came online, they also put the entire code of that poem online so we could reproduce it um, beautifully and easily. Um, so that was the beginning of the Media Archaeology Lab. And then I, and then I had an idea that was just it spelled the beginning of the end for me as a as a normal English professor. I was like, but wouldn't it be interesting if we compared the other popular computer of the time, the Commodore 64, with the Apple IIe to just try <laughs> to think about why did BP Nickel choose the Apple IIe? It was like two or three times the price of a Commodore 64. Um, and yeah, that was the beginning to the end. And then I, I just realized that I was just really fascinated with with the materiality of these machines, like they all have smells and unique textures. The keyboards are all different. And especially in that era between um, let's say 75 and 85, they're all non-standard. And I, I'm really into any moment in time in which it's uh, heterogeneous. Like there's not a giant monopoly on on design. So all the keyboards are different. The functionality is different. The power buttons are different. Um, yeah. Anyway, hope that answers your question, Jennifer. I it, can keep going. No, I, I'm, so, I'm so glad to hear that backstory. I think it's really interesting. And, you know, I think about, you know, we've talked to a lot of archivists on Radio Survivor, you know, who preserve materials and the playback devices, but often that is hidden behind the scenes. And what I really like is that you are allowing people into the lab so that people can hear thing, hear and see things and feel things on the devices that they were created on or for. And, um, and that's got to be really unusual. And I know, you know, play is a big part of the lab. So not only is it just kind of taking people back to, you know, experiencing experimental poetry the way it was created, but, but also um, demystifying technology. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as, as you might have guessed already, I am um, surprisingly to myself, deeply opposed to black boxing. Like it just, it, it bothers me to the core of my so being. Can you explain that term? Black boxing? Yes. Yeah. Well, as far as I understand, it, it came out of the airline industry so that there's a there's a black box on the on the plane that records everything that happens in the event that the plane crashes. They can go and recover that box and try to figure out what happened. But 
the box, you shouldn't be able to tamper with it. You shouldn't know anything that's going on inside of it. And so black boxing was a strategy adopted by the major computer manufacturers in the 1980s as a way to close the computer entirely and turn it into a, um, they called it a, a consumer appliance. Mm-hmm. So there was, a, there was a period between, I'd say, 80 and 84 when they were trying to sort out, how is this going to happen? How are we going to close down the machine so that these darn hobbyists stop opening up the Apple Macintosh and fiddling around? We don't want people fiddling around and understanding how things work inside the computer. And so they started marketing it as a, as a good thing. It's supposedly user-friendly if you seal up the computer and you treat it like a toaster or any other um, home appliance. Um, but no, no surprise, the problem with black boxing, which is you know when you seal it up and you can't access it, you have no idea what's going on underneath the hood of your computer, you can't open it up, you can't understand it, is that you can't repair it. Um, and so it immediately starts us um, into the cycle that we're on now where we're just producing ungodly amounts of e-waste and conveniently shipping it to um, countries on the other side of the world that then have to deal with the environmental and health consequences from our um, insatiable desire to just keep consuming more and more electronics. I think I went off at a tangent. No, I don't even but, remember you know, what question I'm supposed to be answering. You know, I do want to follow up because, I mean, you, you – I think that that's something which, I mean, I think a lot of people know intuitively from, from then they can relate to from a lot of different realms. It's sort of the difference between having a car that was built in 1975 and a car that was built in 2022, not necessarily, you know, and there are reasons why the 1970 car may be problematic, but the ability for someone to go in and, and change out the carburetor, do their own oil changes and things like this compared to a computer driven, you know, car that today is just telling you check engine. Right, and you have to take it into uh, into a, a, a mechanic to read the computer to find out exactly what's wrong. You know, is different, and in the same way that the Apple II, which you mentioned earlier, right, is the first successful Apple computer, came in a big gray beige box that you could open up, had a lot of space in it, and all the parts were accessible for all intents and purposes. And you could plug in and take out cards, which people still do on sort of PC compatible machines. But now you compare that to what is today. Uh, someone has a, um, a Mac computer from Apple, right? And whether it's a laptop or even a little Mac mini getting inside of it's kind of a pain. <laughs> they don't really want you to get inside of it. Yeah. Now, famously, uh, you know, they, they really, you know, don't make them easy to repair or easy yeah. to swap out new parts or something like that. And that's, you can see a real transition even in the lifetime of say one company there, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the other effect of this, which is just another way of saying what you just said is that it's just profoundly disempowering to people. Um, so that, now the the college kids that I'm teaching, uh, 18, 19, 20 years old, um, they they they're just completely resigned to the fact that they are passive consumers of technology. They can't even really imagine another way of uh, existing with technology. And so now I'm remembering your question, Jennifer. It gets back to play. Um, I actually think that trying to embrace play as a 
uh, I don't know, a philosophy of the lab helps kind of like jiggle them out of that, that passive consumer mode. And they start to become gradually over time, a little bit more curious about like, well, what are these machines and how do they work? And you just let them give them the chance to just open-endedly play and tinker and just see what happens. Um, I think it, it is the play is the doorway to reimagining alternatives um, and to creativity ultimately. Yeah. I mean, I, I've had the experience of taking some classes recently where we got to open up things like Walkmans and play with them and, and I think it really does help demystify that whole idea of this, you know, technology is untouchable and, and, and we can't possibly as consumers um, fiddle with it or something bad will happen. And um, to me, that's been really empowering as well. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that that's, that's part of the experience in the lab. So I'm, you know, as you're doing all of these experiments, um, and as the lab is now, you know, 13 years old, um, I'm curious what uh, what you've learned. We've we've been talking about this, I think, through this whole conversation. But um, what can we all take out of older technology? Like, what have you learned, and um, how can that help us going forward? Mm. I think I'm probably just going to kind of repeat myself, but I think that. And embedded in old tech are alternative ways of being and thinking and experiencing the world. And this could actually explain why when young people come into the lab, they're like, oh my God, I have to text my parents or my grandparents because it's not the tech itself. It's that they understand some part of the being of their, their parents or the grandparents. Um, and Again, I think too often young people feel like they just have to accept the way things currently are. And it, that's not just about tech, it's about many things. Um, but the way we're expected to get rid of our phones every three years or our computers every four years, and you come into the lab and you see a computer that's still functioning, like the Altair 8800B computer that we have from uh, 1976. It still works. And so, man, what a what a, a snub, I suppose, to this mantra that we're, we're told continuously about how you have to throw your tech away or get rid of it every four years. And here's this computer that's many decades old and it still works. Moreover, it doesn't have a keyboard or a screen. What the heck is that? And so they start thinking about, wow, well, what difference would it have made if computing had taken a completely different direction and it worked with uh, switches and the output was uh, flashing LED lights. Admittedly, things wouldn't work as quickly or efficiently as they do nowadays, but I think embedded in that machine is an entire alternate universe um, filled with different ways of thinking and experiencing the world. Um, so that's, I think that's the big thing that we can learn about it. Um, it just prompts us to start thinking about what could some other criteria for progress be if we're not just thinking about efficiency, speed, and um, what if progress actually meant going slower? Or what if it meant intentionally lowering our productivity? Or what if it meant living a life of repair and maintenance and learning rather than consuming? And do you think we can still do that? Should we be hanging on to our 
really old computers? You know, are you a proponent of not throwing things into the e-waste? Yes, a hundred percent. I am a proponent of that. Yeah. But, you know, I don't want people to feel guilty if that's what they feel that they have to do because with like the infrastructure barely exists to, to help people deal with um, how to learn how to repair. But anyway, the possibility exists. That's mostly what I'm interested in trying to get across to people. So, so Lori Emerson, uh, you're an associate professor uh, of English and a director of the Intermedia Arts Writing and Performance Program at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And of course, what we've been talking about is the Media Archaeology Lab, where you are the founding director. Um, I, I have a I have a tough question for you <laughs> as we start as we start to wind up the program. And the question is, um, are you still are, are you writing poetry? Oh, no. <laughs> Are you writing no. anything that you would call? And so and so understanding that you've, you know, in your dissertation and, and of course, in your work, you've sort of you're, you're expanding the, the, the definition of poetry. Is there anything in your work right now at the archaeology lab that you think should be counted as poetry? Oh, that's such a nice question. Um, I, I don't know about poetry per se, but I really think about building and running and maintaining the lab as a creative practice. It's like this weird um, um, piece of clay that I and other people are continually molding and shaping and making it do weird little things. Um, and I also think of this uh, other networks catalog that I'm making is um, relentlessly creative and sometimes to my detriment because it hurts my brain. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know about poetry exactly, but definitely mm -hmm. there's a lot of aspects of my life that I think of as creative practices, just not in the way that people usually think about them. Right. When you were, when you were describing your tweets that were showing up on the, you know, on your little mini broadcast station, um, and then when you were describing your experimental poetry later, I was definitely seeing some synergies there where, you know, that felt like, you know, since you have those words on the screen, there's something poetic about that to me anyway. Yeah. And maybe this is a little goofy, but I also feel like my use of Twitter is creative and it, it often feels performative. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I don't know that I can say much more about that, but <laughs> I mean, I, I like, I, I, I'm really attracted to the idea of practice, you know, and, and, and that it gives us then I think the permission to not, have to have a defined outcome, you know, a defined achievement attached to every endeavor that you must, you know, and, and certainly I, I've decried this before on the program, how social media with the tally of likes and the tally of views and things like that can, can accidentally trap us into, you know, attaching metrics to everything that if you don't have so many followers, you didn't get so many views, you didn't go viral you know, whereas I, you know, when you attached your, your Twitter feed to a television transmitter, uh, analog television transmitter, it's, it's unlikely anyone besides the folks inside the lab saw that, right. You know, and attaching, you know, the same metrics that Twitter has, which tells you how many likes there were, right. And tells you how many followers you have sort of, uh, undermines it in a, in a, in a particular way. Yeah. That's really nicely put. That could also explain like in the last couple of years, I've been struggling to try to understand 
why so many things in the lab are just so delightful. It's, but I, I just think that that's what it is because it, it, it doesn't add up to anything. It doesn't produce anything. It doesn't count into anything. It's just like purely pleasurable and delightful in and of itself for itself. Um, and I, I feel very fortunate that I get to have a pretty big chunk of my life dedicated to the delightful. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's why we do this show <laughs> in as much as we've had real purpose and there's a real reason we, but ultimately we say at the, at the start, it's for the love of, of radio and sound. And that's more about delight and fun in some ways than necessarily only the instrumentality of it. Right. In the same way you drew it to the archives, Jennifer, you know, that we may, you may have a, a, a VCR uh, from 1980 in, in, in an archives used instrumentally to help preserve or digitize some media not to play around with, although maybe the archivist does and has delight in it. Whereas instead of it being strictly only a tool, it is an object in and of itself, I, I guess in your, in the media archeology span lab there at yeah. uh, there at the university of Colorado at Boulder and, and perhaps we can, we can leave it there. Uh, Lori Emerson, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. You said you have a website where folks, where you, uh, for your work is at lauriemerson.com. Is that correct? Uh, they both work lauriemerson.net or .com. .com. They should go to the same place. And that's Lori, L-O-R-I, correct? That's right. Yes. I want to make sure we're sending people uh, to the right place. And I think that brings us to a close of this edition of Radio Survivor. Thank you so much for, for joining us, Lori. Thank you so much. That was fun. Lori Emerson is an associate professor in the English department at the University of Colorado at Boulder, where she's also the founding director of the Media Archaeology Lab. You've been listening to Radio Survivor. Today's episode was produced by Jennifer Waits. Co-host was Paul Rees-Mendel. My name is Eric Klein. You could subscribe to Radio Survivor, the podcast, wherever you get your time-shifted radio. The website is radiosurvivor.com. You can email us. The address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Radio Survivor is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To find out more, you can support the work. Go to radiosurvivor.com dot com slash support in the archives of our radio program and podcast there are numerous times where we've had very similar conversations to this one with a lot of different very smart and entertaining people if i do say so myself go ahead and peruse them at your leisure at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast it goes back seven years on behalf of matthew lassar paul reese mandel and jennifer waits my name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening. 